Well, in a, in a recent Harvard Business Review article, there was a woman quoted from a focus group. It's the way the article began, and she said, you know, I view Diet Coke kind of like a boyfriend. It's always there for me. Makes me feel better when times are tough. It's a source of encouragement to me. And went on to explain the, the great level of commitment that she felt towards this particular product and the brand that it represented, that, that she had deep commitment to Coca-Cola and specifically Diet Coke because it had been like a boyfriend to her. And as I was reading the article and considering what is it that actually generates commitment in a person? We're committed to all different things of varying levels of significance and of seriousness. And we have, you know, some folks are really Apple people. They're committed to their Apple products. And it feels like a, a deep commitment to a brand or to a product. And, but we also have commitment to friendships and to spouses and, and, and to organizations. And the question is, what undergirds, what underpins the nature of real, true commitment? It seems that whether we're talking about these things that are lighter or heavier that we experience commitment with, that there's a certain sense in which the shared experience, the ways that we have been through a lot with someone or something, it increasingly, it takes a, a deeper and a truer place of commitment in our lives. And this week, as, as we're going to study Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, what we are going to see in these two chapters taken comprehensively is a picture of what a committed community looks like. A community that has been through a lot with God, both in their own lifetime and over the scope of history. And we are going to begin to experience the call into being that sort of committed community together as Seven Mile Road. Over the last couple of weeks, as we've been sketching out the, the soul of the community, the, the, the group that is responding to the leadership of Nehemiah in this moment as the, the exiles are coming back home and, and beginning to find home in Jerusalem. We've talked about the idea of a transformational community a few weeks ago, and then we zoomed in a bit further and said a transformational community is a worshiping community. And so last week we explored what does it mean to be a worshiping community? And we, we talked some about the conviction that bubbles up in a, in a community that's worshiping God in these ways. And now we're going to zoom in even further and say, well, what does a committed community look like? And specifically, we're going to see that confession, confession, it, it expands our vision of God's character thereby inspiring greater commitment. If I were going to summarize all of Nehemiah 9 and 10 in a single sentence, that would be it. So let me say it for you again, and then I want us to explore that sentence as we study these two chapters. Let me say it again. Confession expands our vision of God's character, thereby inspiring greater commitment. As we begin to pay attention to the ways, all the ways that we have been through the ups and downs with God and he has been present and faithful and merciful. If we really begin to explore that as individuals and as a community, we will experience genuine, deep commitment. The commitment of the sort of community that's a worshiping community, the sort of worship of a transformational community. We're starting to see how this community functions in response to proper leadership. This is what the book of Nehemiah is going to expose for us this week. 
So with that being said, I'd invite you to grab a Bible, to open it with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll also have the verses on the bottom of third of the screen for you. And I'd like to start by reading Nehemiah 9 verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, and this will set up our conversation as we launch in together. Permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. As we continue to ask God, what have you made us to be? What does it mean to be community in your presence and in response to to your character? As we continue to ask that question, we do so with our Bibles open saying, God, speak with power and authority. We would be really wise to pay attention this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth with earth on their heads. This is right on the heels of Nehemiah 8, what we've been talking about as they were worshiping and then they kept the Feast of Booths at the end of last chapter and now still in the same month, now they have set aside time to to fast and to pray with earth on their heads. In verse 2 it says, the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. We're introduced to the first reality that's emerging in this chapter is is we're starting to see a picture of a committed community. The first move is confession. Because what we're going to see is confession expands our vision of God's character, thereby inspiring greater commitment. And this is a community that's confessing. There's three things we learn about faithful confession in these first few verses. The first thing is this. We learn about the posture of confession. The posture of a community that's, that's naming to God the ways that they have been out of alignment with His word and His ways. And the posture is humbly confessing. Did you see the humility of this community? It says that they were fasting in verse 1, that they were in sackcloth and they had earth on their heads. This is literally, they're taking scoops of soil and dirt and grass and they're placing it on their heads as they're low before God. And in essence saying, I'm so low before you, God, that I am I'm at the place of the soil. Like, I am laid low before you, God. You see, to be a part of Christian community with our lives unfolding in the presence of God, it doesn't mean that we are dour, that we're always down. But it's interesting. Here's a community that's just come out of a week-long feast together as they've been remembering God's faithfulness to them, experiencing joy together as they're recalling all of those stories. But on the tail end of it, they still have all of their sin that they've yet to fully process. And and it's out of the feasting that fasting comes. And in this moment, it's not that they're dour and sad, but what it is is that they are perpetually low before God. The posture of a committed community that's confessing freely their sin is one of humility, of, oh God, I am not worthy to even be in your presence. And the reason with such humility they're confessing their sin is is unearthed in the tone of it. We don't just learn about the posture of confession. We learn about the tone of confession. We see it in verse 2. The tone is of honesty. They're coming humbly and they're coming honestly. Because in verse 2 what we see is that 
they separated themselves from the foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins. Amazing that here they are beginning to realize, okay, we have, we've so blended with those that are in this community that the distinctions between who we're supposed to be as the covenant people of God and those that are idolatrous and live in this place have slowly kind of morphed into one. And in this moment of confession, they say, okay, we need to stand before God and we're going to name our own sin. These are, this is not a people that is, that's trying to hedge Trying to say, well, it's not really that bad. It's No, no, no. They're standing out and they're standing up and they're declaring, God, we are in sin. A people that have been humbled by God and now are honestly naming their weakness to him. This has become a powerful rhythm for many of us in this community. And even about seven or eight years ago in my life, I remember discovering John Wesley's questions These are questions that John Wesley, who was used by God to help start um, the Great Awakening, he had penned these questions for small groups of three or four that were leaning into the disciples' journey. And they were questions that were meant to be like a searchlight in your heart, equipping you to confess your sins, to stand up and say, God, here's all of these ways that I have become, uh, that I have been in rebellion, rejecting your word and your ways. And over the last seven or eight years, that has become a normal rhythm of my life. With men that I'm discipling, accountability partners, church planters that I'm walking with. And what I have found is that submitting myself to those questions, asking the hard questions of my heart and my life. What am I doing with my money, with my spare time? Is there anybody that I am holding a grudge against or that I'm bitter towards? And as I I consider these questions, it's like a searchlight going through my heart. And when I begin to name freely what they are revealing, that is the space of, of honest confession. You see, This last week, I I had this moment of great joy. There was a a member of my house church that texted a group of us. And this person in the house church confessed sin. Not like past sin, not sin that they had dealt with and that was tied up in a tidy bow. Like present, real sin. Sin that tempted to discourage and to derail. But in this moment, they texted and said, hey, this is what's happened today. And I, I rejoiced in that moment because this is the truth. Sin is in the system. That's always the case. We're sinners. We are riddled with sin and we will be until we see Jesus face to face. We know that sin is in the system. The way that we know the gospel is in the system is when it is quickly named and brought into the light. <laughs> I rejoiced. You know, I, I broke with this person. I began to pray for God to strengthen them. But I was so grateful for their courage and their willingness to honestly name it. You see a community that's beginning to to be shaped by the character of God, beginning to lean into what it means to be committed to Him. It starts with confession, humbled confession, honest confession. The third thing that we see in this text is the scope, the scope of the confession. And they they don't just confess humbly and honestly, but they confess holistically. Holistically. At the At the tail end of verse 2 into verse 3, what it says is this, that they also confessed the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it they made confession and they worshipped the Lord their God. And then interestingly, from verse 4 
down through the rest of this chapter, they begin to wrestle with the sin and the brokenness of them as a people throughout history. They actually start by going back 1,600 years. They say, okay, well, let's consider Abram and what God was doing when he began to call Abram and then what God did with Moses in the Exodus. And as this this story is told from 1,600 years back and 800 years back and then the story of the judges and the kings that are traced out in the following verses that we have nearly 1,600 years of history right up until the present moment where the people of God are wrestling with the fabric of sin that has shaped their identity as a people. Even to the point, for instance, in verse 25 and 26, this is just after they're confessing that right after we came through the Exodus, God, while we were still in the shadow of Sinai, this is 800 years prior, that we began to chase idols right after you set us free. And then, God, you were still merciful to us. And so then you delivered us into the promised land. And in verse 25 and 26, in a really profound moment right in the heart of the chapter, it says this. And they, being their ancestors, when they came into the promised land, it says they captured fortified cities, a rich land. They took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards and olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and they were filled and they became fat and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their back, and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Those two verses in many ways capture the heart of what is unfolded through this chapter. The people are tracing their lineage for hundreds of years, and what they're realizing is that every turn is marked by sin. They've just honestly confessed their own sin, but as they're beginning to wrestle with God and saying, what is it truly that we need you to rescue us from? And they begin to realize, we need you to rescue us from being human. Like we are so hopelessly flawed in and of ourselves. It's every generation since the founding of humanity, since the founding of your people, and now it's in us too. It's in us. Do you see that they're confessing sin so holistically? It dismantles our sense of individualism, the ways that we want to stand on our own two feet or defend our own history or our own lineage. And, and, and the recognition is going, no, no, no. You'll never be able to justify yourself by your history or your lineage or your goodness. You are part of a system that is flawed and has been from the beginning, and now you're a contributor to it. This is why in verse 33, as the chapter is coming to a conclusion, it comes to an absolute thud as they're confessing their sin. It says this in verse 33, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. The summary statement of their confession is that God, as we survey history and we survey our stories, what we've come to realize is that you are always righteous. And that even in this moment, while we're still under other people's authority because of our sin and because of exile, even in that, you're still righteous. And listen, we are wicked. This is the journey of confession. And it raises the question, like, why are we the sort of people that continue to rehearse this? It reminds me of, uh, of a prayer 
from the Valley of Vision. It's actually the first prayer in the book, the Valley of Vision, by the same name, the Valley of Vision. I just want to read you an excerpt from it. Because I think it captures the power of what the people of God are doing here in Nehemiah. It says this, Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. To give is to receive. The valley is the place of vision. And then catch this. It says this. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. The confession of sin by the people of God in Nehemiah's time. And you and I being willing to boldly, courageously step into this space of humble, honest, holistic confession. What it does is it delivers us into the second reality. It delivers us into this place where we are way down deep in a dark place because we have paid attention to the sin of our ancestors, the sin of our own hearts, the weight of being part of broken humanity. And then when we begin to look up, we say, ah, God's character is far more beautiful than we ever knew to imagine. You see, confession expands our vision of God's character. And that's happening all throughout chapter 9 as we, as we scope this out. Let me just show us a few things that we learn about God's character as we're confessing sin. In verse 7 of chapter 9, what we read is this. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. As the people are confessing their sin and looking back, what they realize is when Abram was worshiping the moon in Ur, as Scott Haifman says, he was fat and sassy worshiping the moon in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God came and spoke to Abram when there was nothing in him that would commend himself to God. They realized that their history of redemption in their own stories and in their story of their lineage, it started with God coming for them when they didn't know to come to God. God came for us. And then they continue to trace the story out in verses 9 through 11. What we learn about his character is that he rescued us. They remind themselves that in verse 9, you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry. What a phrase. God, you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants and the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their, their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. As they're confessing their sin, they're realizing, God, you came for us. God, you rescued us. And then interestingly, as they keep praying, what they realize is this. God sustained us. Look at verses 16 through 21. I think this is the heart of God's character that is exposed in this passage. It says this. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. So this is, this is just after they have been delivered to the waters of the Red Sea. 
They stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. They stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Catch this. The next word, right in the midst of them continuing to sin. Now, just before I read this, hear me. If you know that God came for you and you know God rescued you, but right now you're really discouraged because you just keep sinning. This is the moment that they're in. And this is what they say. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You did not forsake them. Even when they made a golden calf and they said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way and did not depart from them, nor the pillar of fire by night. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and you did not withhold manna from their mouth or water from their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. You see, in the moment of their confession, and their, you see, they're both aware that they have been sinners throughout their whole life, but as they confess holistically and they say, we're part of a network and a web of sin that stretches back for hundreds of years. What that is doing is that's expanding their view of God's mercy. When he says, I'm slow to anger, there's part of me that thinks, is God going to be patient with me even though I've sinned for the sixth week in a row in the same way? I have to show up and I have to confess to Michael and Peter on Monday morning that I've sinned in the same way. And, and there's part of me that struggles in those moments to believe, is God really patient and slow to anger? And what they're saying is, stop and look. I'm not talking about six weeks or six months. I'm talking about six centuries. I'm talking about millennia that he continues to uphold his people and says, in that moment, I still will feed you. I still will care for you. I am the God who sustains. That's the character of God that's explored as we confess our sin. It expands our vision like beautiful stars in the night sky. We see him all the more clearly when we're willing to confess. We start to understand the beauty of the rescue. Some of you remember that in 2018, there was a team, 12, 11 to 16 year olds that were part of a soccer team in Thailand, whose coach led them into some caves. And they hiked back several miles into these caves. And then monsoon rains came early, surprising them and flooding them in. It made international news that over the next two weeks, the race was on to try to rescue this 23-year-old coach and his 12 players. Over those two weeks, there were 10,000 people involved in the rescue. 100 of them were divers that had to dive through the caves in darkness. 900 were police officers. 2,000 were soldiers. And in those two weeks, there was 1 billion liters of water that was pumped out of those caves trying to get to the children. And as, as no doubt you remember, the world celebrated when on July 10th, the last, the last children made their way out. It was amazing. They actually had to they had to knock the kids out with medicine because they didn't want them to flip out and use all the oxygen in the three hours that they'd have to go through dark caves where they couldn't see where they were going. And so they strapped them to these divers that carried them through the caves. All of the children survived, but one diver who was a former, a former Thai Navy SEAL, his name was Saman Kunin. 
he died from asphyxiation in one of those caves. And it was interesting, the next week in Thailand, he was, he was elevated seven ranks in the military after his death. And he received all sorts of awards and they've built a monument to him. They said, we will never forget, we are so grateful for the sacrifice. You see, when we begin to confess, what we're beginning to experience is we were lost and desperate in the back of the cave and he came for us and he rescued us and he sustained us. And what that ultimately creates and the heart that begins to understand it is true commitment, true celebration. And the way that that country came together to celebrate and rejoice what had been done by those who fought to save the kids, that ultimately, if we really see it, we will become a community marked by commitment. And I want to show that to you in the text before we finish. In verse 38, what it says is this. Because of all this, if you're the sort that underlines in your Bible, I would underline that phrase. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. They came to this moment that after rehearsing what God had been doing for hundreds of years, sustaining and saving his people, being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, they said, we all need to make a firm commitment. You know, our willingness to make a firm commitment, to sign the dotted line, to lean in and say, I'm in, I'm in completely. That's not a threat to grace, that flows from grace. I want you to imagine, Ashley and I love to do pre-marriage counseling. Imagine with me that, you know, we'll be sitting with a couple on Monday night on our couch. And I want you to imagine for a second that the groom says, you know, I find it very unromantic to have to have like the whole rigmarole of a ceremony and getting legal paperwork and declaring my promises before all of these people. Isn't it enough that I just tell her I love her? Isn't it, shouldn't it just be enough that I love her? And in that moment, that groom would be missing so much. Because the realization to say that I am not doing this because I have to or because I'm being hemmed in, I'm doing it because I so trust you and there's something so beautiful to say, I will sign any dotted line, I will stand before friends, family, God, court systems, the state itself, and I will promise I'm going to be there tomorrow because my heart has been so caught up with affection for you. You see, this community through their confession, began to see God's character and so celebrate that they said, because of all this, we are going to gather and we're going to sign our names to the dotted line and say, we're in with him. We are a committed community. In chapter 28, or pardon me, in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10, we get the heartbeat of what is unfolding in the whole of this chapter. It says this, the rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. You hear what they're doing there? They're saying we're entering in and we're saying it is beautiful and romantic and right to scream it from the rooftops. We are his. 
And as best we are able, carried along by his spirit and his grace, we're going to obey him with all that we are. And we're going to be locked together arm in arm with this community saying we are holding ourselves accountable to be a committed community. And so as we sit with the weight of chapters 9 and 10, sketching out what a transformational and a worshiping community looks like, what we say is this, it is a committed community. A community that has confessed openly their need for God, experienced His character and said, we're in. We want to be these sorts of people together. Not consumeristic Christians that dip in just at the, at the surface level, but as we lean into the family of faith, as you lean into Seven Mile Road, the invitation is to really make a commitment to your house church, to lock arms with people, to lean into gospel partnership and join the mission of Seven Mile Road. To, as we see at the conclusion that says that they gave generously to uphold the household of God, that we start giving freely of our dollars and our time. And we say, I don't care who knows it. I've signed the dotted line. I'm in with God. A committed community erupts from a confessing community because they have seen God's character. You see, ultimately, ultimately, we have been called to this sort of covenantal commitment with Jesus in baptism. That when you were baptized into the family of faith, what you were saying is, I'm all in with Jesus. It was a recognition that like at the end of chapter nine, where we say, we are wicked and you are righteous. That then from the depth of that dark well, from that cavern, that cave where we're lost and need someone to come find us, from that place, when we look up and we behold Jesus, and we see him for who he is, what we begin to realize is that at the cross of Christ, the one who is righteous became wicked for me. My sin is put on him so that he could absorb the curses of the covenant. And then he could look at me and pour out his righteousness on me so that before God, as my faith is placed in Jesus, God sees me as righteous. And now I don't receive the curses I deserve. I receive the blessings that he earned. Ah, the great rescue. He came for us and he found us way down in the darkness. And as we continue to confess humbly and holistically and honestly the ways that we need him, his grace becomes beautiful like the bright morning star shining in the sky. And we say, I am all in with him. We lean in as a community that's totally and completely committed as we look to him and revel in his character, even in the face of of our brokenness and our sin. And so towards that end, brothers and sisters, I invite you, would you lean into confession? Allow your vision of his character to expand. And as you do, you will find yourself inspired towards greater commitment to his purposes and his person. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for each of us that is wanting to prove that we're basically good, wanting to resist our own sinfulness, the ways that we're a part of a system that is flawed and broken and that we contribute to it daily. I pray that wherever we want to resist our own brokenness and need, that by your Holy Spirit right now, you would allow us to see deep down into that well that we wouldn't hedge, we wouldn't pretend, we would say, yes, the well is deep, but as deep as my sin goes, His grace goes deeper. 
And I pray that that realization, that confession, that affirmation would unlock in us a commitment that obliterates our consumerism, that obliterates the ways that we kind of keep Christian community at arm's length, that we would lock arms and say we are all in for your purposes together. God, we want to be that sort of community. We want to be that sort of community that's part of your transforming work in the world. Help us to be a committed community for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name.